Amen. We wanted to, uh, you know, kind of pick up on last week and carry it forward a little bit more here to the table. And then before we go, I just want to put uh, one more, uh, like a little constellation of pictures of the kingdom of God in front of us for a moment. By constellation, what I mean is there's these little metaphorical little snapshots that Jesus clusters together, both in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke's gospel. So three of the four gospels. In all of them, we see Jesus responding to a question and, and using these sort of peculiar pictures side by side to talk about what's happening in him and what they're seeing among his disciples and what it means about God and what God's doing. So it's this little package that's got a lot going on in it, and it gives us some things to wrestle with. And uh, I've been sort of pondering it and chewing on it for a while, and I don't know that I have it perfectly right, but I want to work on it with you for a minute. Uh, you guys want to do some work with me? You ready? Awesome. Okay, so this is John, or sorry, this is Mark chapter 2, where we read this. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Good? No, of course not, right? Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? This is one of those moments where, like, I like to think it'd be fun to follow Jesus, like to actually be there in flesh and blood and, like, get it straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Um, like, that'd be fun, right? And then I read stuff like that, and I'm like, that's not helpful at all, Jesus, right? <laughs> like, I think, like, imagine somebody came to us and said, why do you guys serve caffeinated coffee at the Tuesday night gathering? Don't you know we drink decaf in the evening? And my answer would be like, don't you know that the leopard only prowls his prey in the, under the full moon by the water? And just walk away. That'd be very frustrating, right? This seems like a fairly straightforward question that they're giving Jesus. Hey, it's normal for all of us to fast. Why are you and your disciples not fasting? Why are you not implementing that normal practice of religion and belief the way that the rest of us are? And Jesus gives three little snapshots. He gives a bridegroom metaphor. He gives an old cloth, shrunken cloth, new cloth thing. And he gives old wine, new wine, and wineskins kind of thing going on here. So these, that, that's that little constellation of pictures that I want to work through with you. These three things all side by side. Now, when you see something like that, I think it's helpful to ask what, what it meant so we can figure out what it means. That can be a helpful start. What, 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 what it meant, what's going on in the first century, we can talk about context, we can talk about some history a little bit to work our way toward what it means. So let's start with a few things about what it meant. First of all, we have people fasting. We have Jewish people in the first century fasting. This is John's disciples. John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus who was heralding, proclaiming, telling people to get ready for the kingdom of God. That's John. And then we have the Pharisees, which is a, is a whole sect of Jewish people who have a certain way of understanding how to live the way that God wants them to live and how to deal with their current circumstance as a people. So you got all that going on, and they're fasting. Now, for these people, when fasting comes up, you could sort of be with them in the first century and look back to when their people fasted to figure out what's at stake in the fasting practice. Quick side note. I think there are lots of really useful spiritual reasons to, to fast. 
there's a lot there. We're not going to get into that today. I'm just going to talk about the historical experience of fasting for these people. Let's look at some examples of when the Israelites would fast in their history. Predictable moments or experiences that would lead them to fasting. Well, for example, it might be when they find that there's an enemy at their gates about to take them down militarily. This is a geopolitical social thing. There's an enemy at their gates and they're afraid that they're about to be defeated. They start fasting. They see a threat coming at them and they're fasting. They might do it when upon that threat entering their land, they see the temple decimated or desecrated, that they see that building wiped out. And because of that, they're no longer able to practice their religion in the temple where they sense the presence of God. There's a clue. Um, Or it might be when they find themselves dragged away in exile. So they've actually been ripped out of their homeland. They've been made sort of slave citizens in another place, and they're not allowed to return to their homeland. These are all predictable moments in Israel's history when the people would fast. And there's some important sort of common themes through all of that. These are people who fast when they sense that God is either against them or away from them or just like altogether gone. If there's an enemy coming at your gates, It's common for these people to interpret that as a sign of God's judgment on them as Israelites. So they fast to say, hey, God, whatever we did wrong, we're trying to repent. We're trying to make up for that. We're trying to affect our repentance through this practice. And maybe, just maybe, you will turn from being against us and for us, and you'll deliver us. Or when those enemies breach the gates and come into the Holy Land, into the holy place, desecrating the Holy Land, desecrating the holy place, it's the believed experience from most of these people that that means that God isn't there anymore, that God has left the building, that God has vacated the land. When they're dragged into exile, they're hundreds of miles away from their holy land, from their temple. They're in a place where they're not allowed to practice their rituals of belief and faith. And because they're not allowed to practice their rituals of belief and faith, it seems like God isn't with them anymore because they meet God in those rituals and those practices. And then when they come back to the promised land, but discover that even though they've returned home, They've come back to an occupied home. In this case, the occupiers would be the Romans. But that too, it doesn't live up to the experience of the holy people being in the holy land with God. And they continue to have some sense that God's either against them or far away or altogether gone. That's the uh, majority context around fasting. So the people come to Jesus and say, we do this thing that everybody should be doing because we know that God's gone somehow. We know that God's either against us or far away. They say, we we do this thing. Why don't you do this thing? And then the first image that Jesus gives them is bridegroom. It's wedding talk. Now, in the scriptures, where you see wedding talk, you often see God describing his relationship with the people of Israel. It's a way of God saying, between you and me, there's something like fierce covenantal love. Between you and me, there's chosenness. I choose you. I want you, God is saying. I desire you. I love you. Covenantal faithfulness, chosenness, that all revolves around marriage talk. Where there are marriage feasts, we see like in John's gospel too, Jesus loves a good marriage feast. It's a place to represent something in particular, and that something is the presence of God. So we have a practice around, among the people that you enact when you feel that God is against you or far away or altogether gone. And Jesus re- gives a rebuttal to that by describing an image that they would know as a sign of God's goodness and presence and favor. He does the bridegroom thing, right? Now he refers to there will be a time for fasting. We don't really have time for that today, <laughs> but just hang with me. So Jesus comes out of the gate in response to their question with an image of God with us. 
And then he does these two things. He does the, the old cloth, new cloth, and the old and new wineskins. Now, the cloth one, I think most of us can understand that. We still have clothing that shrinks in the year 2018. I don't know why we haven't defeated that demon, but like, right? Like, so you've, you've seen what happens when you buy a new shirt and you wash it and you forget that you should hang dry and then, it, you know, you got a midriff all of a sudden, right? Like you've seen that. And you can imagine if you're patching your garments and you have a pair of jeans that have already shrunk and then you patch them with a brand new piece of denim that's never been washed and you put it through the wash, well, you're going to have a rip, right? As the new stuff shrinks and pulls away from the old stuff, right? So you have that image. It's kind of easy for us to get our head around, at least the, the literal content of the metaphor. And then you have the wine-wineskin thing. Now, in the first century, the way that wine is made is you take the grape juice and you put it in a brand new leather wineskin. It's like a leather bag, if you will, a leather vessel. And it's brand new leather, which is important because the leather is going to need to stretch because the fermentation process is going to happen inside the leather wineskin. This is how wine is made. Not sure if you're aware of that, right? I mean, not the wineskins today. Although if you're making wine with wineskins today, that's awesome. Come talk to me afterward. I want to <laughs> get to know you. I don't know if I want to taste it, but I'm curious about what's, what's going on there. So, um, so this is how wine is made in the first century. You take the juice, you put it in the bag, the leather bag, and then the yeast that's in the air uh, infiltrates that, and the process of fermentation causes expansion. There's gases released in the process. If anybody's ever seen anything ferment, you know there's bubbling up that happens there. New leather can handle this because it has some give to it. It has some stretch available. But once the wine is made in that wineskin, the leather has done all the stretching that it can do. So if you dump it out and you put new, new wine in that old wineskin, you fill it up, well, what happens when that new fermentation process kicks in? It will burst the wineskin. There's not enough room in there for the new thing, right? Side note, we've looked at this before. Notice how many times Jesus loves images of a mysterious sort of thing that has a life and energy of its own to describe the kingdom. He loves images of yeast, which works its way through dough. A first century person wouldn't understand that yeast is also what is making the wine wine and causing the fermentation. But again, you have this mysterious life that invades the thing and expands the thing and has a life of its own. He talks about mustard seeds, tiny little seeds that take over the whole yard. So just hold on to that idea whenever you're thinking about Jesus and the kingdom. But you have uh, a question that seems based on the scarcity of God, the absence of God, or the fear that God is against you. You have a question that comes out of all of that energy, and Jesus meets that question with an image of the presence of God, of the joy of God, of the celebration of God with us, which is the wedding. And then he gives two peculiar images about old and new things that are not compatible about old and new things that are not compatible. So I've been working on this passage, and you put those things out there on the table together, and you just sort of meditate on them for a bit, right? And it strikes me that Jesus has been going around saying the kingdom of God is so good and generous and available that it can overcome, overwhelm any deficit of character or circumstance or spirituality. It's that good and generous and available. That's like all good news, right? Who wouldn't want to hear that? Who wouldn't want to experience that? Who wouldn't want to take God up on the invitation of the enduringly good life with God? So that's all good news. But Jesus also seems to be saying it is. It's good and available. The kingdom of God is here for anyone. But there are all sorts of things with which it's incompatible. There are all sorts of things with which it's incompatible, and there are disruptions waiting for us 
as we make room in our hearts and our lives for this kingdom that has a life of its own and keeps expanding. The kingdom of God is available. It's good. It's generous. God is giving it away and inviting everybody in. But be careful. There are disruptions involved and there are incompatibilities that we have to confront. And it makes me wonder, is there anything old and dead in our lives that doesn't have any room for God's kingdom? Is there anything old and dead in our lives that doesn't have room for God's kingdom? Are there ways of thinking believing or acting religiously, for example, that don't have room for God's kingdom. It's interesting, in Mark's gospel that we're looking at here, um, in the gospels, always pay attention to the way that the writers organize the stories. Because they, they, they're kind of allowed to organize the stories however they want in terms of what order they put them in. So in Mark's gospel, you, you land on this peculiar little constellation of images. One way of interpreting it is, look what's going on all around it in Mark chapter 2. If you look in Mark chapter 2, Again, where Jesus is telling a story about the radical availability of God's kingdom and the disruptions that it will cause and the incompatibility of the old with the new. That's all in that little cluster, right? Around it, you see all these stories of Jesus transgressing the lines that the religious people have drawn about what God is doing and in what containers he will do it in. Check it out for yourself when you go home today. Look at Mark chapter 2. You'll see in Mark chapter 2, all around this story, you will see, for example, an instance where Jesus forgives a man's sin, doesn't send him to the temple for the sacrifice, doesn't make him jump through any hoops. He just freely pronounces the forgiveness of the man's sins as if God just freely forgives. And this is a problem for the people that are around Jesus. Then he heals the man just to make a point, which I love. Then uh, we see Jesus healing on the Sabbath, which is its own kind of transgression to do that kind of work on the Sabbath. And it's a problem for the people that are around Jesus. And then we see Jesus and his friends eating while walking through a field in a way that violates a particular understanding of the Sabbath. Those are the things that cluster right around this story where people seem to have bent their lives and their religious practices around the assumption that God is against you or totally gone. And Jesus pushes back against that with a metaphor that says God might be with us and for us and loving us in ways we did not know. And then he says, be careful, the old and the new are incompatible in some highly disruptive, consequential ways. And those stories are situated in the middle of a chapter about all of these transgressions where Jesus seems to be breaking out of the boxes of thought and belief and religious practice that the people have put God in. Hanging with that for a minute? Is there anything old and dead in your way of thinking or believing or being religious that doesn't have room within it for the living, breathing kingdom of God in the year 2018, for the things that God is doing in the year 2018. And is it time to like let the rupture happen? <laughs> is it time to find some new wineskins? What about this? Is there anything in the way you spend your time or your energy that's old and dead and doesn't have room for the kingdom of God within it? There's a rich man who comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, I'm doing, I've done all the right things that I understand to be part of the life of this kingdom that you were promising. And Jesus looks at him, and the text, I love, the text says Jesus loved the man. So whatever is about to happen, this isn't Jesus coming against him. This isn't Jesus trying to hurt him. This isn't even Jesus trying to judge him, I don't think. But Jesus loved the man and then said to the rich man, one more thing, sell everything you got and give out all the proceeds to the poor. Now, it seems in that moment that Jesus isn't coming against the man's wealth objectively, but coming against what it's doing in his heart. The man walks away unable to live up to that, and Jesus is brokenhearted by it. Jesus is made sad 
by a man who seems to have this old dead thing in his life, the way that he relates to his wealth. And there's no room in that old dead thing for the life of the kingdom. And Jesus was trying to liberate him, trying to free him up, trying to give him a new wineskin for new wine. And he wasn't willing to do it because the tear, the rupture was too much for him. And as much as Jesus is preaching good news left and right, he also has these warnings for us that there were old dead things that we were carrying around. Our very lives in some ways might be an old dead thing that we were carrying around. And there might not actually be room for this growing, living, breathing thing that we call the kingdom of God. This reminds me of uh, another moment in the Gospels in the book of John, chapter 3. And uh, to me, there's a connection here. I'll see if I can point it out to you, see if you relate to this the way that I do. Uh, Here we read, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So be clear about this. This is a man who derives incredible power status, uh, uh, wealth probably. This is a man who has built the strength of his life is founded upon a particular um, religious political modality, like the way he thinks about the world, the way he practices his faith, the way he uses his power, all of that lets him have the position that he has. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now there's more there. We might look at it later in the series. But uh, this is, by the way, the origin of the phrase born again. Anybody ever heard, I'm a born again Christian? People will say that, right? Politicians will brandish that in their credentials these days. I'm born again, right? Let's just observe the original context of that phrase is a man invested in the old dead thing, in the old wineskins of social structures, of political powers, of religious beliefs and practices. His life is built up around that. But it's as if something in his soul is stirring when he watches Jesus. Something has dragged him out late at night. He's still afraid. He's not willing to put his status on the line yet. He's not willing to sacrifice his position for it yet. But something has dragged him out of his home in the dark of night to privately meet with Jesus and inquire about this thing that he thinks might be true. And then Jesus says, if you want to be a part of this thing, You're going to have to become like a baby again. You're going to have to become vulnerable again. You're going to have to leave behind all the things that make you feel like you have it put together and figured out. You're going to have to leave the old dead things behind and come into this new life like a baby. You're going to have to have a profound amount of trust and a willingness to make yourself um, vulnerable again like that, to lay hold of the new living, breathing thing that God is breaking into the world. I think it's helpful just to sort of recover that phrase for a moment, born again, because sometimes that goes in weird places today. But the the genesis of it, the beginning of it here in the scriptures is a man who is profoundly invested in the old dead things. He goes under cover of night to talk to Jesus about the new living, breathing thing that is out there. And Jesus seems to be saying, you're going to have to make yourself vulnerable to shed those wineskins. This, by the way, points us to what we'll do around the corner, which is baptism. So uh, as we work through these pictures and practices of the kingdom of God, uh, we're going to offer baptism to members of this community on November 18th and 20th. 
I'm super excited about this. I want to put it in front of you now for a couple of reasons. First of all, because you might be a person who's been hearing this week after week. The kingdom of God is so good and generous and available that it can overcome and overwhelm any deficit of character or circumstance or spirituality. It's that good and that generous and that available. And Jesus actually wants to lead us into it. He actually wants to teach us what it's like to be a part of it. That's actually what he's here for. Maybe that's stirred up something inside you and you've wondered, could you could you actually leave the old wineskins behind? Is that something that can happen? And another moment in the scriptures, we might read with God, all things are possible. Yes, you could actually leave the old wineskins behind and open your heart to this living, breathing kingdom of God that God is giving to us in the here and now. So it's for anyone who might want to respond to that, to say, yes, like I want to be a part of that. I'm opening my life to it. It's for anyone who says, I know there will be some disruptions. Maybe in my life, in my, in my world around me, for our community, there may be some disruptions, but we say that's okay. We're willing to, to go through those disruptions because we believe on the other side of them is the life and the promise of that kingdom. It's enduringly good. It's never failing. We want to be a part of it. It's a ritual which is not just for your brain and for your words. It's for your body. It's for a whole community to celebrate together and say, yeah, it's like you've been buried and made alive. It's like you're following Jesus into a promised future. It's like you're ready for the disruptions and the new life that comes. It's like a, like a new birth happening in your life. So it's a ritual with, with a pool full of water so that it's not just words and ideas, but it's a fully embodied thing. And it's not just for those of you who might think that you want to be a part of that. It's for the whole community. It's for the whole community to renew our own commitment because you commit once, right? But then you live a few years and there are fresh disruptions and there are fresh confrontations and there are always more old wineskins to shed. So it's for a community to renew her commitment together and say, for many of us, we want to say again, we are in it for this journey. And it's for the whole community to welcome people into that life, to say you're not alone in this. Baptism isn't a solo endeavor, it's a communal endeavor for us to say we are in this together, we embrace each other. So I wanted to put that date in front of you, and especially to say that if something is stirring within you, don't shy away from it. Maybe you're like, I don't have it figured out. That's okay, we're going to talk more in the weeks to come about the nature of this. Um, but I would encourage you to pray about it. And maybe you're still one of those people who's like, I don't even know if prayer works, or if, like, I don't know what to do with that, or I don't know what prayers to pray. I'd say, great, pray about it. <laughs> like, Seriously, like you don't have to get it right. You don't have to have the right words at the right modes. But I would say the question is probably, do you sense this very personal invitation? Somewhere in that place inside that senses God, and maybe you don't even have words for that yet, do you sense a personal invitation that you're being welcomed into that kingdom, that you are the person Jesus is speaking to when he says the kingdom is yours, so in your poverty of spirit, in your grieving, in your meekness, and all of your aching for things to be made right, Jesus is speaking to you and saying, I call you blessed because I'm inviting you into God's kingdom. You can follow me if you want to, and we'll ride the disruptions together and we'll see how good it is. Uh, so I would encourage you to pray about it, think about it. Um, maybe that's for you. Uh, somebody... Sorry. Uh, somebody I'm really close with, um, who I love very much, um, has been sober for several years now. And it's the best kind of thing. 
And before this person was sober, they weren't for a very long time. And I had a front row seat for the destruction that their addiction was causing, both in their life and in the lives of many of the people they love. And I don't think I have prayed for anything as hard as I had prayed for them uh, to be rescued out of that. For the kingdom of God to break into their life in that particular way, for it to bring healing and deliverance, for it to bring all that help that we all need in our own way. I don't know that I've prayed for anything as hard and as long as I've prayed for that, for like 10, 15 years of begging God for it, 10 or 15 years of my heart getting ripped out of my chest when I would encounter some aspect of the destruction in their life, and it would like grab the heart out of my chest and trample it. 10 or 15 years, I prayed and begged God and then one day, in radical fashion, God actually did something to rescue this person. And it's their story to tell, not mine. So I won't go down that path very far. But like, it was radical, and it was powerful. And for the last several years, they're one of the most transformed people I've ever seen in my life. Like, you talk about the fruit of the Spirit, and you talk about the fruit of the Spirit growing up out of soil that seemed so unable to sustain that kind of life that you might have been tempted to give up on it and yet there it is like an oasis in the desert like all kinds of new life bubbling up and the crazy thing is you guys like that's the thing I begged God for that's the kingdom of God breaking into the here and now and rescuing a person despite the deficits of circumstance and character and spirituality in their life it's everything I wanted and on the other side of their moment of sobriety and the journey since you know what the first couple years of their sobriety were way harder for me than the last several years of their addiction. It was confusing and disruptive, and it was a completely different emotional journey for me, and I was so confused by it. I did not see that coming. If you would have gone back to younger Jay and said, what do you think it'll feel like when God breaks in and rescues them? I would have been like, awesome, right? And then we get there, and I'm like, whoa, this is weird. I don't know how to relate to this new person in my life. I don't know how to stop protecting myself from this person in my life. I don't know how to deal with the repercussions that are happening and the larger social structures that he and I are both a part of that I have to now find a new place within. It was very confusing to me. And I remember going to a counselor and I said, I'm confused <laughs> because I affirm I'm so happy about this and I'm so lost in it. And the counselor kind of laughed and said, yep, that's how it goes. <laughs> So that's a really predictable pattern when somebody gets sober. The people who love them and who are close to them have to redefine their own lives. It's disruptive. And there were even some old wineskins in my life, some ways of relating, some emotional bags, some old wineskins in my life that didn't have room for the new wine. And I had to figure out how to let go of them. Uh, that person's getting married soon, and I'm helping him get married. And the other night, we were working on some wedding plans. <laughs> we're sitting in a restaurant. I'm crying. He's crying. Um, and we're looking forward to this with such great anticipation. And I know there's not a chance I'm getting through the ceremony. <laughs> I'm the pastor that cries before the bride and the groom cry, which is really obnoxious because I'm not really a sap like that, and there I am, like, 
Uh, and it strikes me um, that all of the metaphors ring true. <laughs> um, God has been pouring new wine, not just into his life, but mine. And it meant we needed new wineskins. And I can't think of a better image than a marriage, than a wedding, to celebrate um, those things which are most enduring and good and true. And so I will be a mess, and it's fine. <laughs> they came to Jesus and they said, why aren't you fasting? Don't you know that God is far away or against us, and we've got to do something to manipulate God and get him back? And Jesus tells a story about a wedding. He says, don't you know the bridegroom is here? God isn't far away. And then he says, there are some disruptions waiting for you in this, but you could open yourself up to it and let God pour out some very good new wine. Will you stand to your feet? I think I better not try to say anything else. Uh, grace and peace be with you. Amen. I love you guys. See you next week.